folks, welcome to episode 153 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray, and we're back again this week with part two of Camilla's guide on Ubuntu server hardening. Uh, so last week we looked at initial steps you can take during the install of an Ubuntu server. Now we're going to look at some post-install steps that you can take uh, next week. We'll be followed up with then steps you can take when actually deploying your applications as well. So stay tuned for that. But first we will do the usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases over the past week. So this week there were 22 unique CVEs addressed by the team. Up first we had an update for expat. This is a C library used for XML parsing. And uh, in this case, uh, four different CVEs were addressed. One of these was actually a regression fix from a previous update for XPAT. I talked about back in episode 150. In that case, there was a patch missing that we needed to fix that CVE properly. So that has now been rolled in plus fixes for these three additional CVEs. Uh, that includes a stack overrun uh, through deeply nested uh, document type description. Basically, uh, you could run off the end of the stack there, most likely causing the application to crash, but possible code execution, as well uh, two different uh, integer overflows that could be triggered through crafted contents, uh, both those leading to possible buffer overflow and again, uh, denial of service as a result or possible code execution. But they have now been fixed for expat and that goes all the way back actually to up onto uh, 1404 extended security maintenance plus 1604 extended security maintenance, 1804 and 2004 long-term support and 2110. An update for Firefox followed that. This updates Firefox to the latest upstream release, 98.0. And being a web browser, it includes fixes for all the usual sorts of things that we see in these sorts of applications. So that's things like, you know, if you visit a malicious website, an attacker could possibly perform cross-site scripting attacks against you or possibly execute remote code uh, on your machine as the browser, that kind of thing. But in this case, there was one other issue that's a little more, I guess, uh, application logic specific in this case. Uh, it was possible for a local user to be able to kind of trick you into installing uh, an extension that hadn't been appropriately signed. In this case, it's a time of check to time of use issue where uh, Firefox would check the signature on the extension that you're going to install. It would then pop up a dialogue to ask you, do you want to install this thing? Uh, in the meantime, someone uh, on your local machine could potentially swap out that extension file with another one that hadn't been properly signed, so a malicious one. Then when you pressed you know, OK to install it, it would then go and install it from this new uh, version that had been swapped in in place of it. Unlikely for a lot of installs, uh, this attack could be mounted in the real world, but uh, yeah, a good one to have fixed there. So thanks uh, Firefox upstream, uh, Mozilla upstream for fixing that. After that was an update for NBD. Uh, this is a network block device uh, server. In this case, a uh, possible stack overflow could be triggered through a crafted message with a large name value. Uh, because this can be sent from the client, you can then have your client possibly crash uh, the server or potentially get remote code execution as a result. Uh, but again, being a stack buffer overflow, we do include various mitigations for uh, stack issues in Ubuntu. So hopefully that one, uh, the impact of that isn't so large, but that has been fixed for Ubuntu releases 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and 2110. Uh, similarly, an update for LibXML in those same releases. In this case, uh, was a user after free that could be uh, triggered. Uh, however, it really depends on the semantics of the application that was using LibXML2. In this case, uh, the function in question XML get ID would uh, return a pointer to memory it had just freed. Uh, how, so if your application isn't then doing a lot of you know, kind of dynamic memory management as a result, uh, you're unlikely to then say go and have that piece of memory get reused or something. Odds on that pointer is still 
pointing to a valid piece of memory so unlikely to say get a crash or, or uh, code execution as a result out of this one however it should be noted that you know this is undefined behavior as defined by the c standard so the compiler can go and do you know fun things like optimize out code and stuff like that around that uh, so yeah that has been fixed uh, so your uh, various applications that are using libxml2 to do their xml document parsing should be a little safer now an update for Z shell after that, or Z shell. Uh, this is for Ubuntu releases 1604 extended security maintenance, 1804 long term support, 24 long term support, and 2110. Uh, two different low priority issues here. Uh, one where it was possible uh, to regain privileges even after you had told ZHL to drop privileges via the no privileged uh, command line option. In this case, uh, an attacker would need to be able to load a crafted uh, dynamic module that then called set UID to kind of regain that saved user ID uh, back to the original one. Uh, similarly though, uh, there was possible to get code execution if uh, an attacker could control the output of a command that was used inside the prompt. Basically, you know, your prompt can have various format directives in it, kind of like printf format directives, and uh, these get evaluated. Uh, however, if the output of, you know, if you're using the output of one command as part of that, if it also had format directives that were inside that output, they would also then kind of get recursively evaluated as well. So you could possibly get, you know, various uh, you know, other commands executed as a result. After that was an update for uh, RSH, uh, the remote shell. So this is the venerable uh, you know, remote access application. Nowadays has been firmly supplanted by Secure Shell, SSH. So uh, yeah, hopefully no one is actually using this in practice. However, uh, it is supported for Ubuntu uh, 18 of long-term support. So we have patched that uh, one CVE here where it's possible for a malicious server to be able to bypass the intended access uh, controls that are in place on the client uh, through using a crafted file name. Basically, they could get the client to modify the permissions of a target directory on the client as a result. Uh, but like I said, you know, if you are using RSH, you really shouldn't be in 2022. Uh, you should uh, switch to SSH. Uh, yeah, that uh, if you are using RSH, you've probably got bigger problems on your hands than just uh, vulnerabilities like this one. Uh, after that, I had an update for OpenSSL. So this is a high priority issue uh, going all the way back to OpenSSL in Ubuntu 14.04 extended security maintenance plus 16.04 extended security maintenance, 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and 21.10. Uh, this was discovered by Tavis Ormandy from Google Project Zero. In this case, it was a possible infinite loop when parsing crafted certificates. Basically, that could allow then a malicious client or server to cause a denial of service against the other end of the connection as a result and chew up all you know, CPU usage as a result and sort of stop you from connecting. Uh, that has been fixed. Uh, an update for LibreOffice for Ubuntu uh, 804 long-term support, 24 long-term support, and 2110. Single CVE here where a crafted document could cause LibreOffice to essentially get confused about the uh, state of uh, whether a document was validly signed or not. And it would then present user interface to the user showing that the document had been uh, correctly signed when in fact it hadn't been. Uh, essentially, there are two fields within uh, the document that uh, kind of present or that describe this information, and it would pick the wrong one to show that information from. That has now been fixed to refer to the correct one, so that then means someone can't go and say modify a correctly signed document uh, to inject content and then have it get displayed as though it were correctly signed as a result. Uh, a couple more to go through an update for TAR, the venerable archive application. Uh, one CV going all the way back to 1404 extended security maintenance plus, uh, as I say, 1604 extended security maintenance, 1804 long term support, and 2004 long term support. Uh, in this case, a, a crafted TAR archive could 
uh, cause the tar command to consume an unbounded amount of memory uh, that would eventually probably get killed by say the out of memory killer or it would just crash by running out of memory on the system as a result and you would get a denial of service through that and finally we had an update for tcp dump back in ubuntu 604 extended security maintenance two different issues here one was a buffer overflow in the command line argument parser Basically, a local attacker, if they could create, say, a large file, like four gigabytes in size, if you could then cause TCP dump to use this uh, via the dash F command line argument, you could then get it to crash or get possible code execution as a result. And uh, there was a very large memory allocation that could be triggered in the PPP decapsulator. So if you are, you know, analyzing PCAP files from untrusted sources, that could then cause TCP dump uh, to crash as a result. But they have been fixed for TCP dump in 604 extended security maintenance now. And that takes us to the end of the week in security updates. So this week we do bring you uh, part two of Camilla's excellent series on Ubuntu hardening. As I mentioned in last week where we covered part one, this is in response to uh, some user feedback, wanting some different tips on how you can harden Ubuntu installs. Uh, so yeah, uh, this week Camilla looks at steps you can take after the installation, uh, how to kind of initially get that machine set up once it has been installed and to be hardened. And next week we'll focus on looking at steps you can then take on actually hardening the applications that you're installing on top of that as well. So uh, thanks Camilla, take it away. Hello, listener. I have returned with the second part of our Ubuntu Hardening Podcast episode. You asked for it and you've been waiting for more, and I am here to oblige. We were last seen concluding our Ubuntu install, bringing into fruition our digital Big Bang, which would then allow us to start setting up our galaxy, preparing our Earth server environment to receive life in the form of code. Today, we dive into the hardening measures we can apply to our Ubuntu system right after a fresh install, but right before a server application setup. However, stop here and go listen to the last episode if you haven't yet, or else you might be a little bit lost among the metaphorical stars. I'll pause here so you can pause as well and go check that out. Back already? I will trust you and believe that you now know how to harden your Ubuntu system during install. So let's get moving and talk about what's next. Usually, when you install an operating system, you define the super user's password during install. Uh, <clears throat> strong password, right? Why am I talking about this in the post-install section then? Because Ubuntu does not encourage usage of the root user. If you remember correctly, or if you don't, but you decide to do an install right now, you will remember or notice that during install, you create a new user for the Ubuntu system that is not root. As previously defined, this user will have a strong password, right? And by default, this user will also have full pseudo capabilities and the idea is to use this user account instead of the root account to perform all necessary operations in the system. Root will exist in the system, but it has no password set, meaning that root login is also disabled by default. This is actually a good thing, considering that you shouldn't be using the root user to perform basic activities in your system. Root is just too powerful and your Ubuntu system knows that. That is why it creates a new user that has as much and enough power in the system, but that can be controlled through the appropriate configuration of sudo. To run a privileged command through the use of sudo, 
A user will need to know the pseudo user's password. So that is an extra layer of protection added to privilege commands in the system, as well as an extra layer of protection that prevents you from destroying everything after you decide to drink and type. Additionally, pseudo calls result in the inclusion of information regarding such a call into a log file, which can be used for auditing and for threat analysis in your system through usage of other installed tools. Pseudo, if configured correctly, will allow you to have more control over a user's privileges in your system. By editing the Etsy sudoers file, you can define which groups in the system have which pseudo privileges, meaning which users are allowed to run specific commands with the privileges of another user, which is usually root. As a result, you don't have to worry about coming across a situation where someone logs in directly as root and starts wreaking havoc in your system. You have created the appropriate users and groups and have attributed the appropriate privileges to each when editing the sudoers file. All users have strong passwords, and whenever they need to execute privilege commands, they have to enter this password, which makes it harder for an attacker that happens to get a shell to type away in their keyboards and with no obstacles to hinder them, read the Etsy shadow file, for example. Granted, if attackers have a password for a user that has all pseudo privileges set, this is the equivalent of being root on a system. But you're better than that. You configure things in order to avoid all power to be held by one single user, and sudo allowed you to do that. Root cannot be restricted in any way, while sudo users can. And that's why using sudo, even if you can have a pseudo root user through it, is a better call. And yes, I know it's not pronounced pseudo, but if I pronounced it correctly as simply pseudo root user, it would have been kind of confusing. So sorry about the mispronunciation, but I had to get that silent P across. Maybe it's intentional though, since a pseudo user is a pseudo root user and a pseudo root user or a pseudo pseudo user is the end goal for an attacker hacking into a system. Guess how many times it took me to record that. Anyway, getting back on topic here, just remember to properly configure your sudoers file. More than just defining what a user can and cannot run with sudo, you can also use sudo itself to configure a secure path for users when they run commands through sudo. The secure path value can be set in the sudo configurations file, and then whenever a user runs a sudo command, only values set in this parameter will be considered as being part of a user's regular path environment variable. In this way, you are able to delimit an even more specific working area for a user that is given sudo privileges. Be careful though and always edit the Etsy sudoers file with vsudo in order to avoid getting locked out from your own system due to syntax errors when editing this file. Do be bold, however, and go beyond the regular sudo usage where you create a new user that has all sudo privileges. Instead, correctly configure sudo for your users, groups, and system. It might seem like something simple, but it could make a huge difference in the long run. So, in our Ubuntu operating system here, step number one post-installation to keep our system safe is to create new users and assign them to appropriate groups, which will have super user privileges and permissions set according to the minimum necessary they need to run their tasks in the system. Remember, 
When it comes to security, if it's not necessary, then don't include it. Plus, as a final bonus to not having your root user configured, not having root password makes brute forcing the root account impossible. Well, that's enough of using the word pseudo for one podcast episode, am I right? Let's jump into our next hardening measure and not use the word pseudo anymore. This was the last time, I promise. Pseudo. Okay, okay, it's out of my system now. Moving on. So, I hear you have your users properly set up in your system. You now want to log into the system through the network using one of the good old remote shell programs. It is very likely this will be configured by you, so let's talk about how should we set this up in a secure manner. For starters, let's not ever, 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 please, use unencrypted remote shells such as the ones provided by applications or protocols such as Telnet. I mean, why? Just why? Forget about Telnet. It has broken our hearts far too much that we no longer can trust it. We know better than let data be sent through the network in clear text. Right, everyone? Okay, that being said, SSH is our best and likely most used candidate here. There is a package for it in the Ubuntu main component, meaning it is receiving support from the Canonical team, including the security team, which will patch it whenever dangerous security vulnerabilities in the software show up. Bonus points! Just installing SSH and using it will not be enough if we are truly looking for a hardened system. So, after install, there are a few configurations we must make through the SSH configuration file to guarantee a more secure environment. Starting off with locking SSH access for the root user. If you didn't enable root user password in your system, then this is already applied by default in your Ubuntu operating system. However, it is always nice to have a backup plan and be 200% sure that external users will not be able to remotely access your machine with the root user. There could always be a blessed individual lurking around the corner waiting to set root password because sudo wasn't working when I needed it to, so I just enabled root. Yeesh. In the SSH server configuration file, there is a variable permit root login, which can be set to no, and then you avoid the risk of having an attacker directly connect to your system through the internet with the most powerful user there is. Brute force attacks targeting this user will also fail, but you shouldn't worry about that if you set strong passwords, right? We also want to configure our system to use SSH2 instead of SSH1, which is the protocol version which is considered best from a security point of view. The SSH configuration file can also be used to create lists for users with allowed access and users with denied access. It's always easier to set up the allow list because it's easier to define that which we want. Setting up a deny list by itself could be dangerous as new possibilities of what is considered invalid may arise every second. That being said though, being safe and setting up both is always good. You should define who is allowed to access the system remotely if you plan on implementing a secure server. Organization and maintenance is also part of the security process, so defining such things will lead to a more secure environment. 
The same can be done to IP addresses. It is possible to define in the SSH configuration file which IP addresses are allowed to access a device remotely. Other settings, such as session timeout, the number of concurrent SSH connections, and the allowed number of authentication attempts can all be set in the SSH configuration file as well. However, I will not dive into details for those cases since more pressing matters must be discussed here. Disallow access through password authentication for your SSH server. Use private keys instead. The private public key system is used and has its use suggested because it works and it is an efficient way to identify and authenticate a user trying to connect. However, do not treat this as a panacea that will solve all of your problems since, yes, using private keys to connect through SSH is the better option, but it will not be if implemented carelessly. It is well known that you can use private keys as a login mechanism to avoid having to type passwords. Don't adopt SSH private key login if that is your only reason for it. Set a private key login for a more secure authentication process and not because you might be too lazy to type in your long and non-obvious password. Set up a private key with a passphrase because then there is an additional security layer enveloping the authentication process that SSH will be performing. Generate private keys securely, going for at least 2048-bit keys and store them securely as well. No use implementing this kind of authentication if you're going to leave the private key file accessible to everyone with 777 permissions in your file system. Another important thing to note, correctly configure the authorized keys file in your server such that it isn't writable by any user accessing the system. The same goes for the SSH configuration file. Authorized keys should be defined by the system administrator and SSH configurations should only be changed by the system administrator. So adjust your permissions in files that record this information accordingly. Wow, that was a lot and we aren't even getting started. Oh man, this is exciting and it goes to show that hardening a system is hard work. Pun completely intended. It also goes to show that it requires organization. This might be off-putting to most, but can we really give ourselves the luxury of not caring about such configurations considering that attackers nowadays are getting smarter and more resourceful? With all the technology out there which allows us to automate processes, we should be measuring up to sophisticated attackers and doing the bare minimum shouldn't even be a consideration, but instead a certainty. That's why we're going beyond here and we're implementing kernel hardening measures as well. The sysctl command present in the Ubuntu system can be used to modify and set kernel parameters without having to recompile the kernel and reboot the machine. Such a useful tool, so why not take advantage of the ease brought by it and harden your system kernel as well? With sysctl, it is possible to do things such as tell a device to ignore ping requests, which can be used by an attacker during a reconnaissance operation. Sure, this is not the most secure and groundbreaking measure of all time. However, there are other things that can be set through sysctl. This was just an introductory example, you impatient you. 
The reading of data in kernel logs can be restricted to a certain set of users in order to avoid sensitive information leaks that can be used against the kernel itself during attacks when you configure sysctl parameters to do so. So there you go, another example. It is also possible to increase entropy bits used in ASLR, which increases its effectiveness. IP packet forwarding can be disabled for devices that are not routers. Reverse path filtering can be set in order to make the system drop packets that wouldn't be sent out through the interface they came in, common when we have spoofing attacks. Exec shield protection and SYN flood protection, which can help prevent worm attacks and denial of service attacks, can also be set through sysctl parameters, as well as logging of Martian packets, packets that specify a source or destination address that is reserved for special use by YANA and cannot be delivered by a device. Therefore, directly through kernel parameter settings, you have a variety of options that go beyond the one mentioned here, of course, and that will allow you to harden your system as soon as after you finish your install. So, we've talked about the users, we've talked about SSH, we've talked about the kernel, and we have yet to pronounce that word that is a cybersecurity symbol, the icon used in every presentation whenever we wish to talk about secure systems or by adding a huge X on top of it, breached networks. The brick wall with the little flame in front of it. The one, the only, the legendary and beloved firewall. No, firewalls are not the solution to all security problems, but if it became such an important symbol one that carries the flag for cybersecurity measures most of the times, it must be useful for something, right? Well, let me be the bearer of good news and tell you that it is. Firewalls will help you filter your network traffic, letting in only that which you allow and letting out only that which you allow. Amazing! If you have a server and you know what ports this server will be using, which specific devices it will be connecting to, and which data it can retrieve from the internet and from whom, then you can set up your firewall very efficiently. In Ubuntu, you can use UFW, the uncomplicated firewall, to help you set up an efficient host-based firewall with IP tables. Why would I need a host-based firewall if I have a firewall in my network though, you might ask? Well, for starters, having a backup firewall to protect your host directly is one more protection layer you can add to your device, so why not configure it? Second of all, think about a host-based firewall as serving the specific needs of your host. You can set detailed rules according to the way the device in question specifically works, whereas on a network-based firewall, rules might need to be a little more open and inclusive to all devices that are a part of the network. Plus, you get to set rules that limit traffic inside the perimeter that the network firewall limits, giving you an increased radius of protection for the specific device we are considering here. Another advantage, if the various mentioned here are not enough, if your server is running on a virtual machine, then when this machine is migrated, that firewall goes with it. Portability for the win. If you're not convinced yet, I don't know what to say other than, have you seen the amazing firewall logo? Putting that cute little representation of cybersecurity in your host diagrams 
in your service organization files will definitely bring you joy, guaranteed. Next, in configuring our still waiting to become a full-fledged server system is FSTAB. The FSTAB file is a system configuration file in Ubuntu, which is used to define how disk partitions and other block devices will be mounted into the system. Meaning, defining where in the Linux directory tree will these devices be accessible from when you are using the operating system. Therefore, every time you boot your computer, the device which contains the data that you expect to use needs to be mounted into the file system. FSTAB does that for you during the boot process. And what is even better, it allows you to set options for each partition that you will mount, options that change how the system views and treats data in each of these partitions. Remember eons ago when we were talking about disk partitioning and I said there was more to it than just isolating temp from everything? Well, the time has finally come to talk about it. So, even though it's not Thursday, Let's go back for the throwback and keep the temp example alive, shall we? If during install you separated your partitions and put temp in its own separate area, you can use FSTAB when mounting the partition that will be represented by the temp directory and set it as a no exec partition. This is an option that tells the system that no binaries in this partition are allowed to be executed. You couldn't have done this if your entire system was structured to be under one single partition, or else the entire partition would be non-executable, and then you could not have a server running on that device. You could also go one step further and make the partition read-only, although for temp that might not be the best choice given the reason for its existence. Applying this to another situation though, if you have a network shared directory with its own partition, for example, it is possible to make this partition read only and avoid consequences that might arise from having users over the internet being able to write to it. Another suggestion, setting up the proc directory with the hide PID equals to two, GID equals to proc mount options, as well as the no SUID, no exec, and no dev options. The proc directory is a pseudo file system in Linux operating systems that will contain information on running processes of the device. It is accessible to all users, meaning information on processes running in the system can be accessed by all users. We don't necessarily want all that juicy data about our processes to be available out there for anyone to see, so setting the hide PID and GID parameters to the previously mentioned values will make it that users will only be able to get information on their own processes and not on all processes running in the server, unless they are a part of the proc group. The no exec, no SUID, and no dev options will make this part of the file system non-executable, block the operation of SUID and SGID bits set in file permissions, and ignore device files, respectively, in this file system. So, more hardening for the partition. A simple one-line change in the Etsy FSTAB file can make a very big difference when considering the protection of your server. Though, once again, I stress that all of these are possibilities and considering our main example here, if you do have software that requires execution in temp, for example, which is a possibility when we consider that there are packages that execute files from temp during install, 
Please do not follow the suggestions here directly, but instead adapt them to your environment and your needs. Listener's discretion is therefore advised. Our last post-install tip comes in the shape of a file. A file filled with lines and more lines of information about your system. Use your logs. Take care of your logs. Embrace your logs. Ignorance might be bliss in a lot of situations, but when it comes to a computing device, going that extra mile to understand it might be what saves you from the future robotic takeover a lot of people are expecting to happen. Why? Because if you know the logs, you know the system, what is happening, where are the issues? And then when the robots conquer, you will be the one that knows how it feels, its innermost secrets. The connection you build with that single computer might save the world from AI takeover. Victory through empathy. Okay, seriously though, I continue as dramatic as ever, but do not let my exaggeration steer you away from the most important takeaway here. Most of the logging information in an Ubuntu system will be found under the var log directory, with logging being performed primarily by syslog. The syslog daemon will generate all kinds of log files, from authorization logs to kernel logs to application logs. Apache, for example, has a log file entry under var log, considering you have it installed in your system. You can configure your device to use the syslog daemon to send log data to a syslog server, which will centralize log data that can then be processed by another application in a faster and more automated manner. Do remember to transfer your logs through the network in a secure, preferably encrypted fashion though, or else you're just leaving sensitive data about your server and everything in it out there for the taking. That being said, here your configuration file of choice will be etsy-syslog.conf. In this file, you will tell the syslog daemon what it should do with all the data gold it's collecting from your system. You can set what is the minimum severity level for messages that will be logged, as well as set what will be done to these log messages once they are captured. These can be piped into a program, for example, which can then process the message further and take some kind of action based on the outcome, like sending the message via email to a desired mailbox, or, as previously mentioned, they can be sent directly to a centralized server that will perform further analysis of the information through another third-party software. With the data and the means to send it to a place where it can be properly processed, you have all that is necessary to appropriately and securely understand what is happening to your system. You can then follow up on issues quickly enough whenever you have one that is a threat to your server security. Reaction measures are also a part of the hardening process, since we can have situations where preventing is just not enough. Billions of theoretical years have passed so far for our ever-expanding and evolving digital galaxy. And I'm sure it actually feels like that after all the talking I have done, but please bear with me for a little while longer. Earth is finally ready to have its first living creature be born. It is finally time to install the software needed to transform this, up until this point, regular device into a mighty internet-connected server. It is time to get our applications running, our ports open, and our data flowing. Let's do this securely, however, shall we? 
Wait, not yet though. Earth was able to wait a billion years, so you might just be able to wait another week. I know, I'm being mean. Anyway, not much I can do about it now. Don't forget to share your thoughts with us in our social media platforms, and I will see you all next week for the grand finale. Bye. And thanks again, Camilla. All right, one other thing I wanted to cover this week is that we are still hiring. We have an open position for an Ubuntu security engineer. Uh, this position is uh, worldwide, home-based, fully remote. So if you wanna come and join our team, work from your home, from wherever you are in the world on making your favorite Linux distribution more secure, uh, check out the link in the show notes and apply. We would love to have you join our team. All right. So that takes us to the end of this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with the team about anything that you've heard uh, on the podcast or anything else Ubuntu security related, you can email us at securityubuntu.com or you can come and chat to us in the Ubuntu security channel on the libero.chat IRC network or you can find us on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec as well. So thanks everyone for listening again for another week. We'll be back again with you next week, in particular with part three of Camilla's Ubuntu Hardening Guide. Uh, but until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.